before I get into the substance of uh, the talk today, I do want to thank, uh, of course, Lauren and William for their leadership on their respective series uh, and this invitation, Sergio, uh, for the work that he is doing, uh, of course, in making the center such a hospitable place uh, for us all, uh, and Ellen for her very good work with the logistics of my visit. And all of you for uh, taking the time out of your day to come and uh, attend the event. So, <clears throat> as you know, the focus uh, of my talk today is uh, indicated here on the ethics of teaching race. And uh, what I'm aiming to do today is to really sort of uh, uh, engage race as a potential subject of instruction across varied formal and informal educational spaces. Uh, analyses of the ethical contours of race as an explicit subject of instruction uh, will be explored. Um, uh, so in the analysis of, the, the analysis of teaching of race is going to be conducted in the service of an ongoing project that I have regarding increasing clarity regarding uh, racial justice in and through education. So uh, if you have questions about sort of, you know, ways that I might construct some of my thinking regarding that broader project, um, I would be in your debt. So despite the enduring presence of public and private hesitations regarding race as a subject of instruction, reference to it continues across several scholarly contexts. Given this, the relative paucity of sustained analysis of the defensibility of teaching race is striking. I think that we should be asking, what is the most ethically uh, coherent stance regarding race as a subject of instruction? And that's sort of what I'm going to be getting into uh, today. So today I'm going to engage this question by cataloging a few of the ways in which educational actors might navigate portions of the competing concerns and conceptual positions related to this topic. In doing so, I'm going to highlight the possibility of coherence between some of the uh, more popular approaches to teaching race as a subject, and at its core, the talk really considers whether and how these approaches to race as a subject of instruction might be compatible with one another. In doing so, I'm going to explore varied understandings of race uh, and the sort of as one subcategory of teaching race, complexity of racial identity formation as a pedagogical goal. Additionally, given the bounty of existing work on the subject, I'm also going to provide an overview of arguments for and against what is commonly understood as anti-racist education. I'm going to close with some remarks about the conceptual and normative tensions pertaining to race as a subject of instruction at the intersection of both of these uh, two approaches to thinking about this topic. So just one preliminary remark uh, that I think is warranted. Uh, it should be noted that much of what I'm going to be discussing today operates on the assumptions of the English-speaking Western world's conceptualizations of race. Uh, it might be the case, as I'm sure many of you are aware, um, that in another context within which race is construed quite differently than it is uh, in this context, uh, some of what I'm arguing uh, becomes more or less uh, appropriate. Uh, please uh, just hold that in mind as we move forward. Um, so here I've given you a sense of where we're headed. These are the, the main sections that I'm going to engage in. Um, okay, so first uh, let's talk about um, uh, contextualizing race a little bit. And in this, uh, I've got a few things that I want to do. I first want to talk about the historical context. So before directly engaging race as a subject of educational interest, it's helpful to place my talk's understanding of race in a social, historical, and conceptual context. Race might be understood as a system of organizing persons into groups or kinds on the basis of shared physical and or ethnocultural characteristics. Chief among these defining racial characteristics has often been skin color, but other criteria have surely been salient. 
While similar characteristics were likely perceived across far distant periods of human history, those perceptions of difference did not constitute criteria for racial in the contemporary usage of the concept for racial categorization until around the 17th century or so. So historians of race point to this period of time as the era within which scientifically articulated counts, accounts of deep difference between human populations began to resemble what's now identified as race. Now, these accounts were put forward by members of the growing scientific community as they sought to catalog, to catalog and hierarchically organize. And that's very important. Hierarchical organization uh, here is going to be key to some of what I want to say later on to catalog and hierarchically organize human populations, suggesting some inherent differences between them. I'm soon going to discuss the ontological significance of these categorizations, um, but the economic significance of this modern account of race during a period in which Europe's colonial ambitions were in full swing uh, certainly deserves mention. We can talk more about that uh, in the question section. But race and its implications uh, regarding degrees of civilization and sensibility has served as a legitimating rationale for much of Europe's expansionary and dominating practices. The understanding that some individual members uh, were persons of a scientifically demonstrable subordinate group, that is to say ones less intelligent, less caring, more brutal, violent, etc., operated in the background of much of the historical period in which race came to be known as it is used today. Arguably, much of these perceptions and categorizations continue to attach to understandings of race in the contemporary context. And this is important to acknowledge um, as we think about the moral significance of race and the ways in which its significance, um, its moral significance, uh, sort of uh, uh, haunts the conversation that I'm talking about here. So within this background, Philosophers have developed rich analyses of the concept of race, and these serve to identify precisely what is intended and implied uh, by the use of race as a conceptual category uh, within contemporary society. And these uh, categorizations, uh, these arguments, these analyses can be helpful in determining whether and how race might be taught. So as various theories and analyses of race might provide insight into the different dimensions of its practical and ontological statuses, prioritizing any one of them might lead to an idiosyncratic exploration ahead. So for our purposes, I think we're best served by an overview of some, not all, it's not exhaustive, but some of the competing conceptualizations of race uh, that tend to pop up in conversations about the teaching of race. Now, there are, I want to be very clear, other ways of many other ways of conceptualizing uh, race, some of which you might say are more popular in the public discourse, but I'm really focused particularly on the ways in which arguments regarding the teaching of race uh, hinge upon or invoke uh, certain arguments. So I'm really focused on the arguments that tend to be forwarded within those conversations. Um, okay. So a widely discredited view of race, still implicitly endorsed by many, is that it is entirely of a natural kind, right? On this natural kind view, there exists objective biological facts, potentially, about uh, race and these identity differences that are fully inclusive of all members of a given race and, in, uh, to some extent, exclusive of non-members. Um, and that these explain group and individual dispositions and characteristics, as I mentioned before, the 17th century uh, sort of engagement uh, comes to mind here. These presumed biological differences are understood often to be genetic, uh, and uh, an implication of these views is that uh, these races existed before people began referring to them in referring to them in that period that I mentioned, the 17th century. Right. So, folks who hold this kind of natural kinds view think, 
okay, sure, historically we began talking about things around that time, but um, races existed far, be, uh, far before. Again, despite the fact that this cluster of views has been broadly discredited by uh, the scientific community, versions of this biological account of race persist in the present era and come up often uh, in these conversations about teaching, uh, teaching race. I mean, so uh, some of you might be parents or uh, caregivers to young children. And uh, in my case, I've got uh, two boys at home. And um, sometimes when I'm picking them up from school or participating in PTO meetings, you know, a parent will lean over to me and mention something of their own views about what should or shouldn't be taught in the schoolroom. Um, and oftentimes there is the invocation of this kind of natural kinds account uh, of, of race, right? Uh, you know, interesting that they're teaching this, right? I mean, uh, of course, there are biological differences, right? This is the sort of thing that people sort of believe, even if it's been discredited in, the, in most academic contexts. So uh, indeed, many other of the philosophical positions that I'm going to get into uh, regarding race are, in some sense, a response to this natural kind of view uh, of race. And one such alternative philosophical view of race uh, is a view that is kind of racially skeptical, right? So in the wake of these kind of natural kind of biological views of race uh, having been discredited, it might be the case that race has no objective referent. Since race is not a natural kind, it may not mark any real thing in the world. Racial skeptics uh, such as uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah and Orlando Patterson uh, hold the view that such skepticism is largely warranted and that race ought to be understood largely as a fiction. Of course, that's an oversimplification of their views, but uh, for our present purposes, uh, put it forward. Um, but within the spectrum uh, between uh, these two views, this kind of racial skepticism and this natural kind view, uh, there are other views that deserve to be mentioned. So we might uh, look towards uh, a view, not very popular, but it is a view that does come up uh, in some of these conversations on the PTO, um, sort of a racial population naturalism. Not called that by the PTO members, certainly, but um, it involves some limited acceptance of the biological account of race, and it argues that while race might not be, strictly speaking, a natural kind, there is a vague biological view of race that is defensible, these folks might claim, since race could be understood to sort of overlap with some biological characteristics according uh, to the definitions of race that have been socially endorsed. I also, from time to time, and I mean, I know that there are bioethicists in the room, um, you know, uh, I find this view kind of popping up in some of those conversations uh, as well. Now, this account doesn't identify exclusive or essential traits of a given race, but has rather little to say about how race might manifest in behavioral traits or of individual persons. Uh, but still, some have suggested that a minimal account of racial population naturalism is evidenced in the U.S. census categories uh, that mark these populations as physically, mostly phenotypically, dissimilar. So as such, the concept of race might be understood as referring to something that is objective in ways that the racial skepticism view uh, would likely reject. And finally, the, the last view that I really want to kind of flag for you is a kind of racial constructivism uh, view. And this is the view that race is a socially constructed phenomenon. And it's perhaps the most popular of the explicitly held uh, explicitly defended, excuse me, uh, it's not the most popularly held view, but it's the most popular, it's the most popular of those views that get explicitly defended. Some of the other views get articulated, asserted, uh, but defended, uh, I would say, is this racial constructivist, uh, constructivism view. Um, and it's especially popular amongst scholars in social sciences, including uh, folks in education. 
uh, where my primary appointment rests. And this family of accounts rejects a biological or natural kind view of race. According to these views, it would be entirely incorrect to understand races as having any existence before humans began referring to them in the 17th century period I mentioned earlier. Races, according to this view, exist only as social constructs. And while a thin version of the constructivist account of race might grant that there exists some ancestral or genetic differences between groups of human populations, an allowance that is in many ways similar to some varieties of the racial population naturalism that I mentioned previously, this constructivist view uh, of race concludes that uh, the fact that these are conceptualized as racial rather than some other, in some other way is, broadly speaking, a matter of social choice. So another strand of constructivism distance itself, distances itself from granting the necessity of any shared physical characteristics among members of race, arguing that the essential shared experience of having been racialized, that is perceived and treated as though one is a member of a racial group, that that is the defining trait of a race's members. And so across the varied constructivist accounts of race, there is, of course, much disagreement and nuance that's premised on implications of race's ontological status as a social phenomenon. So some hold the view that race and racial identity can be a source of sustained joy and an ethically held identity and need not be linked to forms of oppressive power, while others hold the view that race is necessarily an expression of social power and caution should thus be exercised regarding race's present value beyond its potential for facilitating collective social action in the service of its own elimination. I'll talk a bit more about that in just a few moments. So consistent with this observation, it should be noted that each of the major ontological views of race might lead an adherent to either preserve the concept of race in social practice or seek to eliminate it. Now, these alternatives represent the major normative stances on race across the ontological categories that I've sketched here for you this afternoon. Again, and there's nuance across the range of approaches that one might hold on that spectrum between these two poles, and the poles here are racial con uh, conservationism on the one end and racial eliminativism on the other, but the implication of these social aims being partially expressed as educational aims in a given curriculum cannot be overlooked. So uh, effectively, all that I'm saying here, sorry, I was blocking this for you. This is what I was hiding. Um, all that I'm saying here is that, um, you know, uh, depending on where someone falls uh, in regards to these kind of arguments regarding race, uh, they might fall anywhere on this uh, spectrum. And depending on where they fall on the spectrum, they might have uh, quite dissimilar views from a person situated elsewhere regarding uh, race as a subject of instruction. So. Given that background, uh, let's talk about race as a subject of instruction. Um, so let's move towards uh, the one uh, uh, point that I want to make. So given the range of philosophical positions that I've outlined, one might expect the potential justifications for and against including race on the curriculum are plentiful. Using these philosophical positions as a foundation for analyzing ontological views and normative commitments to the concept of race, the remainder of my remarks uh, this afternoon will engage the question of whether to teach race as a question of justice or uh, what is right or appropriate. Uh, as these questions are generally understood in the context of earlier in the context that I earlier stipulated, um, it could be read to imply at least three distinct uh, questions. And I'm just going to focus on two of these questions, but I first want to outline uh, all three of them, just for clarity. First, in asking whether to teach race, one might intend to ask whether the fact, be it understood biologically, socially, or otherwise, of race 
whether the fact of race ought to be a subject of instruction. Now, this might be understood as the very sort of the most basic question at stake, um, because answers to it are presupposed by the other two questions that I'm going to mention. So for this reason, the analysis that I offer isn't going to directly address this question because it's implied, by the, it's implied on the others. So secondly, in asking whether to teach race, one might intend to ask whether students should be taught that they and others have a racial identity. Should a curriculum communicate and endorse the view that uh, a student has a race to be known and with which to identify? This is a question of the appropriateness of what might be called racial identity formation. And I want to be clear, this is not racial formation, but rather the formation of a racial identity. I can talk more about that distinction later. Uh, it seems to be the intended focus, uh, racial identity formation seems to be the intended focus of some who pose the general question of the legitimacy of teaching race as an educational subject. And then the third question here in asking whether to teach race, one could intend to ask whether some students should be taught that they have normative obligations arising from the existence of the concept of race and its role in potentially unjust systems of oppressive power. This is the question of whether anti-racist education is justified. Here, as is also the case for the question of whether racial identity should be taught, one might readily invoke the various ontological views or normative positions previously described. These questions of racial identity formation and anti-racist education are going to be addressed in the remainder of my talk. So moving towards uh, teaching racial identity. In its most basic form, racial identity formation can be described as the process uh, by which a person comes to identify with and potentially internalize, identify with and potentially internalize a racial identity, which uh, potentially, though not necessarily, may include some normative guidance on how the person ought to act and interpret themselves in relation to others. As a phenomenon studied across disciplines, this process can be understood as developmental or educational in nature. It can also be fruitfully explored from a sociological or philosophical perspective. Of course, across these approaches, it should be, it's clear that one's identification as a member of a racial group may occur alongside salient development of other dimensions of a person's identity. We can imagine, think about here, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, right, and a sort of intersectional approach to development. Despite this uh, intersectional observation, our present, uh, my present discussion of racial identity formation is going to proceed in relatively abstracted terms with little reference to these complex interconnected dimensions of identity. So uh, we might imagine that, you know, learning to be, uh, to sort of identify as a, you know, as a, as a black girl is different than learning to uh, you know, hold an identity as a, you know, white boy, right? Um, but I'm just going to focus here on race. I'm not going to sort of uh, look at the ways in which these identities might intersect in meaningful uh, and relevant uh, ways. So racial identity formation is rarely identified as an explicit educational aim in schools. Of course, notable exceptions to this um, are potentially found in educational institutions with race-sensitive missions. For example, schools within the Afrocentric education movement uh, in the U.S., and my understanding is that there are a few of these, uh, more than a few, uh, in uh, Canada as well, um, and in other locations um, uh, internationally, um, make these sorts of goals, often, not always, make these sorts of goals uh, explicit. 
We can also think about sort of in the U.S. historically black colleges and universities, which have, uh, as part of their mission, again, this racial uh, dimension, uh, racial identification uh, and other Still, despite the rarity of explicit statements uh, regarding of goals regarding racial identity formation, there's much hand-wringing amongst detractors regarding uh, that as a potential educational outcome. So I want to talk about uh, learning to be racialized. So in asking whether racial identity formation should be permitted as an educational goal, it presupposes that the question is in some sense live or open. That is, so if one holds the view that persons will inevitably come to racial identities regardless of any educational activity, the question of education's role might seem to be a miscategorization, misunderstanding of racial identity, right? Or if it's you know, the case that uh, one thinks that it's just impossible to educate someone towards a racialized identity, uh, similarly, the educational question kind of falls by the wayside. So resistance to or acceptance of racial identity formation as an educational goal must, in any case, grapple with the various contexts within which racial identity formation might occur. So racial identity formation might occur within formal educational context, including, um, and I'm here using US terminology, public and private and other schools, colleges and universities. Racial identity formation as a pedagogical goal within these institutions uh, might manifest as an explicit portion of the curriculum, either appearing on syllabi or as part of the general ethos of the institution's uh, explicit mission, uh, or perhaps embedded uh, within its very culture. Again. Uh, think of the you know, race-conscious schools, uh, historically black colleges and universities, etc. It might also exist in uh, less formal ways, conducted in ad hoc, but no less educationally significant ways, right? We might be educated informally uh, regarding race. So another context for racial identity formation are precisely those informal educational practices of a student's experience. Here I'm using the term student very broadly. By this, one might surely recognize the informal, that is to say, not officially sanctioned lattice of intentional practices and interactions within, say, a school that, despite their having no fully predetermined design, lead to pedagogical outcomes of racial identification or internalization. Additionally, one might recognize the informal education that occurs within a family, within the neighborhood or broader community. Social arrangements can greatly shape the ways in which persons come to understand, interpret, and less cognitively embody the validity of their racial identity. Arguably, much racial identity form formation can occur within these informal educational contexts in ways either intentional, so you might imagine a parent seeking to instill a positive sense of racial group membership in their child, right? Intentional or unintentional yet unfortunately, predictable uh, 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 ways, right? So we might imagine here a child's pattern of interactions with clerks at various shops in their town, which might suggest to that child some salient and potentially internalizable difference between them and their racially dissimilar peers, right? So the example I've got in mind here is the uh, you know, child being followed around in the, in the, in the, in the store, right? Uh, communicating informally something of uh, how they ought to uh, regard themselves and make sense of the experiences that they're having in relation to other, others. So the question of the appropriateness of uh, racial identity formation as a curriculum broadly construed might be coherently analyzed across these very contexts. But there might be some problems with teaching racial identity, and I'd like to get into uh, some of these uh, uh, right now. So across various contexts in which racial identity uh, formation might be a pedagogical goal, a number of argument types might be pursued in opposition or in support. 
I'm going to acknowledge a couple of the stronger categories of these uh, right now. So firstly, racial identity formation might fail to meet a general sort of, sort of general pedagogical standards. Broadly applied to potential subject matter, the question of what ought to be included on any curriculum might rest upon some epistemic and pedagogical standards. More specifically, one might hold the view that racial identity formation simply fails to meet these standards. So a racial skeptic, uh, for, for instance, might hold this pedagogical view and therefore conclude that any attempt to educate a student towards embracing a racial identity is tantamount to a form of educational malpractice, right? Uh, on the grounds that it involves teaching a false belief, they might say, look, what are you doing in trying to teach a racial identity? Um, there's nothing there to teach, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's fiction, right? There's no, no um, yeah. So, of course, racial skeptics could also advocate for the inclusion of racial identity formation on the curriculum. So I want to be clear that you could be a racial skeptic and still uh, wish to include uh, some racial identity formation uh, uh, goals on, on the broadly construed curriculum. For example, the racial skeptic of this sort might uh, reject that implied, uh, what I said earlier about those epistemic standards, or they might replace them with other more permissive standards. For example, they might hold the position that there are some falsehoods that might, falsehoods that might be justifiably taught if they're useful in further educational or social goals, right? So some racial skeptics might say, look, you, you know, there's no truth to the, the fact of, of, of race or the idea that you hold a racial identity, but it's useful to be taught that you do because it allows you access to these meaningful uh, questions or conversations about which uh, we ought to engage you. Similarly, though within a separate category, one might object to the curricular inclusion of racial identity formation on normative conceptual grounds. One might simply hold an eliminativist normative stance regarding race. Uh, such that ethical engagement with the idea of race would be primarily aimed at weakening and or destroying the present version of the concept. This might be pursued by neither facilitating racial identity formation nor encouraging students uh, by, to, by other means, internalize a specific racial identity, with this resistance representing a meaningful step in that larger eliminativist project. Now, of course, natural kind, uh, racial population, naturalism, and constructivist views can all accommodate the inclusion of racial identity formation on the curriculum on the grounds that race represents some objective or intersubjective uh, fact of the world. These views uh, can perceive understanding race and identifying with racial group with a racial group as a desirable educational outcome that allows students to navigate a racially complex present and likely complex uh, future. But I want to talk also here about power. So a major facet of approaching the question of racial identity formation in the curriculum is this analysis of power. On some accounts of race, uh, some accounts of race build into the very concept of race. Power and its hierarchical manifestations um, uh, are uh, on those accounts essential. So you recall that I earlier mentioned the importance of this hierarchical uh, uh, dimension to race. Well, here's, I think, where it comes uh, uh, comes into play in quite a, a, a relevant way. So against the backdrop of the aforementioned categories of argumentation and the earlier invoked framings of how race might be understood and racial identity might be learned, sensitivity to power and hierarchy can give rise to some of the case types that I'm going to mention uh, in just a moment. In each of the case types that I want to mention, it's helpful to note that racial upgroups, right, what I'm thinking of as upgroups, right, 
And up by up groups, I mean those racial identities that are placed comparatively higher in a social hierarchy than the presently relevant alternative group, right? Uh, these racial upgroups have greater power than those in the racial down group. And by racial down group, I mean just those racial identities that are placed comparatively lower in social hierarchy than the presently relevant alternative group uh, with which they are engaged. Now, these relationships of power can be explored across varied understandings of race and racial identity formation, but in what follows, a few of the critical arguments within each case type of student, teacher, parents is going to be presented. Uh, these don't represent all of the possibilities, but I think looking uh, at a critical analysis in this way is uh, quite illuminating. So uh, I want to get into these cases uh, just a little bit. So we're going to consider a few cases. Um, cases, there we go. So first, the first case is the up-up case, right? So when members of the up group are taught their racial identity by other members of their own up group, one might worry that an interest in reinforcing the status quo of the racial uh, hierarchical structure would undermine objectivity in the educational project. So consider the potential for an education in racial identity occurring during a period of strict segregation in the United States, for instance, or in apartheid South Africa, right? The racial awareness that most often communicated among members of the racial elite in such societies likely though not necessarily, asserts the rightness of existing social positions. These might often have been done in rejection of or indifference to the pursuit of truth, which might be an educational standard worthy of defense. But there may be also uh, more subtle ways in which shared upgroup membership might undermine appropriate degrees of objectivity. The concern here is that this case type uh, doesn't present a promising scenario for racial identity formation that challenges students presumed superiority, right? So if we're just having up-up group uh, 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 education, right? So uh, the teacher is a member of the up-group, the student's a member of the up-group. Um, there's a worry about what might happen. Now, of course, such unreflective replication of social conditions need not be the only racial identity formation that might occur within this case type. We can imagine that potentially it could be the case that some up-group members might subscribe to a strain of racial eliminativism that might result in their teaching a racial teaching racial identity in the service of those eliminativist aims. This could entail the acceptance of racial identity as a condition for recognizing an abiding responsibility to pursue ameliorative goals, right? And of course, to some extent, this could be true given an eliminativist orientation in any of the case types that I'm going to describe ahead. But you sometimes uh, encounter this, and I'm just, you know, it feels like I'm picking on the PTO, but, uh, you know, amongst some members of the PTO at my uh, older son's school, you know, there's, you know, this kind of um, uh, racial uh, literacy reading group, right, where, uh, you know, it's mostly, you know, white identifying parents uh, getting together with one another to talk about whiteness uh, in the hopes that as they communicate with their children about their whiteness, they're doing so in a way that sort of uh, strips away across time, right, uh, the degree of um, uh, social power that they uh, have access to by uh, identifying with uh, uh, with whiteness, right? So you can imagine that up-up group uh, uh, interactions can proceed in this way. Uh, case two, I'd like us to consider uh, up-down uh, pairings. So when members of the up group are taught their racial identity by members of the down group, one might worry about potential for harm to down group members 
And there are two examples here that I think are sort of suggestive of the range uh, that we might consider. So if on the one hand, the presumption is that down group members are teaching up group members to hold a racial identity that confirms the legitimacy of existing power arrangements, down group members would seem to be working against their own benefit. Arguably by enforcing the legitimacy of the hierarchy, these down group members could be understood as doing greater service to the maintenance of the power structure than their up group peers in the previous case style, right? So, you know, it might be the case that the up, up uh, pairing uh, certainly allows for the perpetuation of uh, the racial hierarchy, but some might say, well, look, we've even got a member of the down group who says that this is okay, right? So uh, it surely can't be that bad, right, uh, is what I'm sort of getting at here. Their endorsement of the racial structure, despite the detriments that it might visit upon them, can be seen as a more impartial statement of the validity of the status quo, right? So um, the impartiality here, uh, you know, uh, relates to uh, uh, issues regarding credibility and sort of if you believe your teacher, right, and take your teacher to be uh, informed uh, on the subject uh, in which they're instructing you. But if, on the other hand, the presumption is that the down group members are teaching up group members to hold a racial identity that disrupts the legitimacy of existing power arrangements, the worry here might be that down group members would be unduly burdened by the task of leading up group members to, to analyses of racialized power. Consider the frustration of you know, uh, BIPOC educators who, despite being formally listened to, feel deeply unheard by their white audiences, right? The emotional exhaustion of this enterprise, that is to say, being a member of a down group while attempting to educate members of the up group about their racial identity and race more broadly, uh, has been well described in popular outlets, right? Uh, in recent years, particularly, there's been a lot made about uh, folks saying, look, I'm, I'm not doing the work, right? They say, I'm not doing the work for you any longer, right, on these uh, issues of racialized justice. Uh, I take it that there's enough resources for uh, you to do that work without relying on me to lead the way, right, some, some say. Okay, the next case that I want us to consider is the down-up case. So when members of the down group are taught their racial identity by members of the up group, a number of concerns might surface here. First, worries similar to those earlier outlined might be present as up group members have power-based interest in maintaining the status quo and possibly varying degrees of failure to grasp the realities of race. Even if motivated by truth rather than the maintenance of their power privilege, upgroup members might be in a relatively disadvantageous epistemic position in comparison to their downgroup students. Given the ways in which social power operates in regard to knowledge creation and access, downgroup members might be in a position to more clearly see racial realities than their upgroup uh, uh, educators, right? Learning their racial identity via upgroup members might obscure aspects of their own experiences and constitute further epistemic or moral wrongs. So this is a concern that I think we can spend more time talking about, but I'm, I'm happy to just sort of flag uh, that there's more to uh, engage there. Finally, even if upgroup members are motivated, are motivated by a pursuit of truth and sufficiently informed about race, their work in teaching a racial identity to downgroup students may constitute what feels like a type of condescension, right? Actually, uh, I was talking in a class earlier, and uh, a student mentioned precisely this, right? A worry about feeling as though she, uh, self-disclosed uh, white identity, uh, white identifying, um, felt that if she were teaching uh, people of color about race, she'd be in some sense doing them uh, sort of a disservice in that she might be condescending uh, regarding experiences that they know 
uh, in a way that she does not, even if she were well-informed, having earned a degree uh, in subject matter that is appropriate. So this is, the this is a concern of analysis that, uh, of analyses that question the appropriateness of upgroup members' participation in this work on the grounds that even if well-qualified, there exist downgroup members who are similarly or better qualified for the work or that the positions of these folks make uh, these interactions in some ways unsavory. So a potential conclusion of these analyses could be that the most appropriate task for upgroup members is to listen rather than to instruct as their efforts at instruction are a further exercise of unduly held racial power. Again, I just want to flag, you know, uh, in a previous uh, role, I uh, worked uh, in uh, what was at the time, I think, the second whitest uh, state in the United States. Um, I think it's now the first whitest state. But, um, but many of the pre-service educators with whom I was working, right, undergraduate students who wanted to be teachers, often expressed exactly this worry, right? Again, you know, they thought there's something important here to engage, but maybe I, they said, maybe I'm just not the right person to do it. Maybe all that I should do is just be silent and create space for others to do that work. But that also feels unsatisfying. Okay, the last case that I want us to consider here before I move on to a, a different uh, strand of things is a case of down-down uh, groups. So when members of the down group are taught by members of their own down group, one might again worry that they're passing along internalized identities that serve the existing racial power structure. This may, not occur, this may occur not because they're passing along down group members' alleged moral shortcomings, but because they share understandings that reflect the epistemic obstacles that they've had to navigate in their own process of coming to a racialized identity. Here, one might imagine that the dominant epistemic frameworks for understanding themselves via the concept of race are hermeneutically unjust, such that their educational efforts are marked by that injustice and visit the same upon their students. So you sometimes encounter this uh, in intergenerational uh, sort of fam familial conversations regarding racial group membership as members of the older generation, not all the time, but sometimes, uh, you know, are passing along messages that they say are uh, essential messages, right? This is how you navigate the world. You have to understand these things, right? And then the younger members uh, who, you know, perhaps identify with this racial uh, uh, group um, to which they are uh, held to be members, say, well, look, that feels so constraining, right? Uh, maybe there's a new way to hold this identity uh, that doesn't sort of uh, attend to some of the obstacles that you have uh, faced in the past. Um, there's a sense of uh, sort of the older generation's account being somewhat outdated or restricted. On the other hand, the racial identity formation that occurs within this race, uh, within this case type, might be genuinely empowering, as may be the case for the previous case types involving down group members as well. Here, one can think of the racial identity that gets formed within a down group majority social or educational context, like those of, again, the historically black college and university, the Afrocentric school, etc. Across the various conceptual categories that I've laid out here, arguments in the case, uh, across the various conceptual categories, the arguments and the case types, questions of how best to engage the realities of race, be they metaphysical, social, both or neither, and the potential formation of racial identity in educational contexts are challenging. Still, these questions about the place of racial identity formation represent only a small subset of the broader conversation about race as a curricular subject. Far more widely discussed particularly at the moment, are disputes regarding the teaching of normative responses to race. So I'm now going to attend to these matters, which are often referred to collectively as anti-racist education. Um, okay, so before asking uh, what duties 
uh, might exist uh, to educate students on the subject of their race as identity, one might also wonder about what learnable duties, if any, follow from these more fundamental understandings. At its core, this is to ask whether students ought to be taught that they have normative obligations arising from their and others' race. For many, this question places race within its social historical context, asking about uh, the moral significance of its manifestations and operations in societies in, when, in which race is at least partially defined by patterns of power and hierarchy, this social contextualization of race must address racism. So racism can be understood here to refer to instances of unjust exercise of power contingent upon race, and these exercises can be individual or group-based and can be either intentional or unintentional. So what, if anything, should students be taught about race and racism in such contexts? So first, let me just uh, get, oh, I here, conceptual distinctions, great. Uh, although anti-racist education is widely discussed in the media and more specifically within academic and practitioner-focused educational contexts, the distinction between uh, non-racist and anti-racist education might not be clear, so I just want to offer that here. Non-racist education uh, encompasses educational projects that do not promote racist aims or ends. This would include, among other things, educational projects that are merely sort of, in an absolute sense, neutral with respect to race and power or offer no normative guidance regarding matters of racism. In addition to education that is procedurally or pedagogically neutral with respect to race and power, the category of non-racist education could also be understood to include educa uh, educational efforts that actively resist or oppose racism. An anti-racist education might thus constitute a subclass of non-racist education in that, like the broader category, uh, it does not advance racist aims uh, in, in practice. By contrast with uh, the broad category of non-racist education that is merely neutral, however, uh, anti-racist education aims to resist active, resist racism taking positive steps to advocate uh, for and advance a student's awareness of and subscription to actions that would remove the unjust exercise of power that is contingent upon race. Recalling the earlier distinction between poles of racial conservationism and racial eliminativism, uh, it's clear that strong and weak positions on this spectrum would lend uh, support to different views on anti-racist education. So just brought this back. Um, for example, a strong racial conservationist might hold the anti-racist view, defended on instrumental or inherent considerations, uh, that students ought to be taught that they have a strong obligation to maintain racial concepts within their society, even as they pursue anti-racist uh, uh, aims. By contrast, a weak racial eliminativist might uh, a weak racial eliminativist might be relatively agnostic about whether students are taught to engage in projects aimed at resisting the continued use of the concept of race, though they might have strong views about obligations to act in response to a racialized reality. Indeed, the range of normative arguments regarding race-sensitive moral obligations is wide. Most of the arguments tie the question of what ought to be taught regarding racial obligations to visions of social maintenance, or social improvement. Across these accounts of what is socially desirable, there may be many reasonable views that might be considered anti-racist in the way that I've described. Anti-racist education might take many forms across the educational context uh, that I mentioned, formal and informal. For present purposes, only a few, few of the arguments in support of anti-racist curriculum are gonna be offered, and these are gonna be followed by a brief overview of some of the potential concerns. 
So I want to just think uh, in the time that I have remaining um, about some cat various categories of support. So um, one popular category of argument that asserts, uh, asserts that anti-racist education is the pedagogical expression of an abiding social or political project uh, of anti-racism. So against the backdrop of broadly structurally corrective or an ameliorative project, anti-racists often defend the pursuit of their aims in and through the educational domain. And there are at least two sort of subcategories of argument that adopt this uh, perspective. One, it might be the case that education is simply one area equal to many others in an ongoing anti-racist project, right? So you might sort of say, um, you know, so perspectives within this view might regard anti-racist education as no more or less desirable than anti-racist practices in areas of, say, employment or healthcare or, uh, you know, socialization, socializing rather. Um, but another subcategorical view might regard education as especially important to the underlying anti-racist project. So perspectives within this view might regard anti-racist education as a foundational cornerstone of pursuing the anti-racist ends, right? Education broadly construed might therefore be an area of special and prioritized attention for the anti-racist project. In either case, under this broad category, students who receive an anti-racist education are participating in a desirable social and political project that is that broad sort of anti-racist uh, endeavor. Now, related to the view that education has special significance is a separate category of argument that sees racism as in some sense a kind of a failure that's an educational failure. Whoops, that's not the direction. Yeah, um, as an educational failure. So this category of views need not be attached to a larger social political project of anti-racism, right? A person might not need to be sort of committed to these broadly uh, social, these broad social political uh, anti-racist aims. For example, one could advance arguments within this category focusing on, say, the shortcoming of individuals and their intentions while remaining completely uncommitted to addressing what's sometimes referred to as systemic or structural or institutional forms of racism. At their core, arguments within this category of anti-racist education uh, could just be addressing a looming potential for miseducation, understood as a cognitive, dispositional, epistemic, motivational, uh, or in some other form, a uh, myriad of other forms, type of educational failure that might be associated with racism, right? So these sorts of folks might say, look, if folks are, you know, in, are racist, right? Something's gone wrong educationally, and the thing that I care about is good education. So I want to be anti-racist. Uh, I want to engage in anti-racist education. I don't really care about all the rest of it, right? Uh, racism might exist, but that's not my concern, right? Um, <clears throat> students who receive an anti-racist education are participating in an educational project that's desirable according to education's own standards, right? So rather than the social, political, moral issues, it's just the educational or the epistemic uh, or the dispositional or whatever um, that is, that's engaged. Finally, a small but sort of growing category of argument relies on the notion that anti-racist education uh, need not justify itself by reference to outcomes at all, whether these be social, political, uh, outcomes or pedagogical educational outcomes. Instead, this category of argument might say that there's just something inherently or expressively uh, valuable in pursuing anti-racist education, even if such efforts are unlikely to result in meaningful social political improvement or meaningfully less educational failure. 
Under this category of argument, the practice of anti-racist education is desirable without reference to any outcome-oriented value for students. So uh, you can imagine that there are some uh, uh, folks in the Afro-pessimist uh, tradition who might say, look, <laughs> we don't think it's going to get any better, right? But there's, there's value to doing the work, right? Uh, there's a beauty in that struggle. Um, so just thinking uh, further about some of the arguments uh, against here, I'm just going to kind of wrap up some of my remarks on anti-racist education because my timer is telling me to do so. Uh, despite the range of arguments that might be in support of anti-racist uh, education, there are some arguments uh, against it that have received considerable public attention, particularly in the US, uh, and these take many forms. First, detractors worry about the degree to which certain forms of anti-racist education might impress upon students either a sense of guilt regarding uh, racism if they're members of a racial upgroup, or might erode their sense of self-worth if they're members of a racial downgroup, right? So here I'm thinking about the sort of affective arguments regarding how people feel. Regarding the former, arguments uh, linked to culpability tend to object to what they perceive as persons being saddled, right? Unduly saddled with responsibility for correcting racial wrongs that they didn't cause, right? So solely on the account of their, uh, of their race. They argue that this onus, real or not, ought to be placed, ought not be placed, excuse me, on students. So again, without belaboring the point about uh, the PTO, right? Uh, you know, someone leans over at the PTO meeting and says, can you believe, right? The kids are only eight years old. Why are they learning about this, right? Uh, uh, you know, are they gonna feel guilty about, or are they gonna, right? This is the type of thing that, that, uh, that I've heard, uh, at least. Uh, regarding the latter uh, category, that is uh, regarding uh, eroding the sense of self-worth, Arguments predicated on a risk to self-worth tend to object to students being taught to view the world in a way that necessarily locates them as disadvantaged, oppressed, or victimized uh, by racism, right? They're only eight years old. Let them have a childhood before you give them all of this, right? Related to these issues is the view that anti-racist education actually reifies racial identities. Um, so in some ways, it kind of uh, gets back to the earlier thing that I said, or the earlier uh, arguments about uh, teaching racial identities, um, racial identity formation. So even without utilizing the value-based dimensions that I referenced, some hold the view that an explicitly anti-racist education promotes race as a prioritized identity. Um, you know, the other day I was in a, a sort of public was a debate. They told me it was going to be a conversation. It was a public debate uh, about affirmative action, race-conscious admissions policies in the U.S., and the person with whom I was speaking um, uh, said, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, most of the, the most interesting people I meet are people for whom their racial identity is not a big part of how they think about themselves in the world. I meet people who are not very interesting, and they prioritize their racial identity in ways that, uh, you know, I really think uh, is just completely uninspired. Right? So I was thinking about this person, uh, who remained nameless, uh, when I was uh, reviewing my notes for the talk here, because this is precisely the view, right, that, um, you know, that perhaps anti-racist education uh, is just prioritizing for people an aspect of their identities that ought to be sort of far in the background, if present at all. According to these critics, rather than allowing students to come to racial understandings of uh, and, and identities on their own timeline, this curriculum probably forces or draws student attention uh, to race in ways that are, in some sense, undesirable. Now, sometimes the alleged undesirability of anti-racist education is predicated on claims that it's too ideological a perspective to be taught in many educational contexts. Here, 
Critics might advance the view that education ought to be relatively uh, neutral or objective in regards to normative matters like race or racism, lest it constitute a form of indoctrination. It's incumbent upon those who take this position to explain how such arguments might align with the presence of other normative curricular content. Okay, so um, I've exceeded my time. Uh, I've laid some things out for you. Uh, if it were the case that I had not exceeded my time, what I would have laid out for you uh, in more detail, but I'm just going to do very briefly now, um, is uh, just a few more cases. I love cases, uh, as you can see. And um, uh, what I've done uh, in the paper that I'm sort of drawing from here is I've tried to uh, make sense of the coherence of particular uh, uh, sort of configurations of these views, right? Um, is it possible for someone to, or how is it possible, or, or what sorts of arguments uh, might be defensible? Uh, can someone hold a coherent ethical uh, stance uh, if they are opposed to anti-racist education, uh, but in favor of racial identity formation, right? I then consider uh, in the paper the same question regarding folks who are opposed to um, uh, 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 anti-racist education and opposed to racial identity formation, and as you are, you can guess the rest, right? Uh, people who are in favor of anti-racist education uh, and in favor of racial identity formation and folks who are uh, in favor of anti-racist education but are very much against racial identity formation. Um, in the remarks, uh, which I can get into a bit, I sort of talk about uh, how these positions um, uh, hold together and whether or not there are some uh, of these cases that are more ripe for uh, tension and the coherence between these views than others. Um, I try not to sort of show my hand uh, in the paper and in the talk, uh, but I'm happy to get into a little bit more uh, uh, in the Q&A. So I've provided an overview of some common perspectives on race as an educational uh, subject. And of course, given general and pervasive views on race, the popular sense of discomfort and or uncertainty regarding race as a subject of instruction is likely going to persist unless relatively fundamental social transformation occurs uh, you know, in the context that I'm thinking of. Still, I've offered some examples and clarifications regarding the ways in which consistent views, coherent views on the subject, can incorporate a wide range of commitments and values. Um, and to be clear, I think some of these views are better than others, um, but uh, I've tried to create space to sort of showcase uh, ways that we might sort of uh, engage with folks who are, um, you know, well-intentioned regarding these issues. Simultaneously, I've tried to provide a context within which additional analyses might be undertaken individually and with others. And I think that's the important piece, right? Again, in the U.S. context currently, there are a lot of um, uh, uh, disagreements uh, about these sorts of issues. Uh, they've become something of a political uh, football, if you will. Um, but I think that there is a way forward. And I've tried to sort of clarify some of uh, these issues so that I can have better conversations with other people on the PTO at the school. Um, but these might involve further permutations of underlying conceptual and normative commitments, and they might address other approaches to race as a subject of instruction. Surely, though, the constituent matters that I've addressed here might continue to be regarded as contentious even while thoughtful analyses of race as an educational subject may, even if only incrementally, increase clarity and contribute to a more productive deliberation regarding racial justice in and through education ahead. Thank you very much. I look forward to questions. <laughs>